Leonard Herrera was possibly the single smartest person I had ever known. He had grown up gifted, and like most gifted children, quickly became bored and disinterested the further along he went in his education. In junior high, he occupied himself with tinkering on electronics, which led to his love of computers. He eventually started teaching himself programming languages, and by the time we had graduated high school, he had secured a job as a software developer for a logistics firm. In his spare time at home, he picked up a hobby that naturally went hand-in-hand with his work, extracting the source code of old applications, abandonware, vaporware, anything long neglected. He liked to go through the code and see how and why they did things, reading the comments and blocks like an engrossing book. I asked him why one time, and he likened it to seeing the entire infrastructure of a ghost town. Over the years, he took up residence on various message boards and chat sites, and established a well-known presence in certain circles. People would post with obscure issues or requests, and he could deliver the improbable. He only took on the ones that most appealed to him, usually esoteric or difficult, or a combination of both. The overwhelming majority of requests were for computer games. Japanese exclusives from long-defunct developers and publishers from the 80s, limited-run arcade cabinets that had never had a ROM uploaded, now-useless peripherals for various progenitor virtual reality devices that never took off. Leonard had found people with shared interest and a lack of technical skill, but their collective knowledge had built an impressive crowdsourced database of things no one had thought about in decades and given him a continuously updating list of projects to dive into. He spent countless hours rummaging behind the scenes, unearthing things that were tucked away in the final product and never meant to see the light of day. Unused assets, functions, sound bites, diatribes from disgruntled employees. He would post his findings and musings to the boards, and they would add it to the database, reveling in the weird artistry. While working through a list one night, Leonard discovered a pattern. A developer named NEL Dreamscapes had made several lackluster games in the early 80s and suddenly disappeared. The company was composed of one man, according to public record, Wilson Crabtree. The games all had one thing in common, besides being objectively terrible. Groups of errant code placed randomly in the file and commented out. On a hunch, Leonard copied each line into a new file and found that they fit together in a block of code, but chunks were missing even after going through the source code of every NEL game. Instead of taking this as a setback, he took it as a challenge. The pieces were meant to be found and assembled most likely an Easter egg meant to be discovered long after the fact. He kept his new passion project a secret from the communities, so he could give a grand reveal once it was put together. Throwing himself into research, he made and sent out a fleet of web crawlers designed to look for NEL dreamscapes and return everything found into a database. He patiently let them run over the course of the next few weeks, watching as the database size grew by a few kilobytes. It was the same sparse details about the company in a list of games, slightly paraphrased. 
Disappointed, but not deterred, he continued amassing text. One day after getting home from work and settling in, he checked the progress of the scrapers and found the database had grown exponentially to a few megabytes. He checked and discovered an archived web page from an old gaming magazine, an ad that featured screenshots from a few of the games in action, with the features and visuals embellished dramatically and not resembling the final product in the slightest degree. Wilson Crabtree wasn't on the page, but instead, a different name. Christoph Lesher. With a new lead, he sent out a fresh wave to pull anything with that name and NEL Dreamscapes. The next morning, there were errors on the screen saying failure to write to disk. The crawlers had been canceled and were no longer saving anything. He checked the database and found that it took up all of the space on the drive. Opening it, he saw that it contained only one repeating word. Help. He caught me up on the events over drinks on my newly finished patio the next night. I understood half of what he told me as he went into more detail, but the concepts of things like translating hex or altering RAM address values lost me, and he didn't slow down to explain. When he reached the end, he paused and took a long drink. So are you? I asked, setting my glass on the railing and leaning against it. It sounds... Off to me. He shook his head. That's how a lot of these things are. You'd be surprised. Like the old ARGs where you would follow clues leading to a payphone at a specific time to answer a mysterious call. It's a game now. Someone out there is holding the prize. I just need to find out who and where. What do you think it is? I asked. Honestly? Most likely nothing, he answered. A congratulations or thanks for playing message. But I'm not expecting a reward. An acknowledgement that I reached the end is all I need. You know me, it's always been about the chase. True, I said. I grinned. Probably while you're still single. He shrugged apologetically. It's my rugged good looks and flawless physique. I'm an intimidating specimen that's too perfect for this world. We laughed and carried on through the night until he left. He promised to keep me in the loop on whatever he found as he slid in the back seat of the rideshare car that pulled up to the curb. A few days later, I spoke to him again. He said he dug through all the log files and packet captures and found a digital thumbprint that pointed to the address of a server. Strangely, it only allowed outgoing traffic, nothing incoming, almost like a beacon or transmitter. He sounded tired, but excited. Plugging it into an online registrar showed the IP was registered to NEL Dreamscapes. And what's more, there was a contact email address. Leonard sent an email recounting what he had discovered and heard nothing back for a while. Sunday afternoon, he called me, speaking quickly and ecstatically. He had received a reply. The body of the email contained only chopped up code blocks, the missing pieces. He arranged the lines in the most logical way he could think of and scrutinized it, 
trying to parse why it was written to constantly override its own allotted memory while it was running, before determining it wasn't malicious and executing it in a compiler. He went quiet for a moment on the phone, and I heard sporadic clicking and typing. After a long while, he said he would call me back. I didn't hear from him until Thursday, when I called to confirm our drinking plans because he wasn't responding to text. He spoke in a low, reserved tone when he answered. He said he would need to cancel our plans and that I should instead meet him at his house. He had something to show me. It felt odd, but something about the way he spoke worried me, and I wanted to make sure he was okay. I agreed and was already in my car with the key in the ignition when he hung up. I rang the doorbell, and a soft, it's open, was barely audible from inside. I went in and made for the stairs, but stopped when I saw him in the living room. He looked haggard. The curtains were closed and a lamp was on in the corner, and he had moved his computer from his home office and hooked it up to the television. He was pacing in front of it in sweats with no shirt on as I stepped into the room. The screen was filled with ever-changing numbers and symbols, so small and packed together that from a distance it looked like static. He walked up to it and extended a finger at one of the lines. Watch this one, he said. I don't know what I'm even looking at, I replied. Just watch he said. His eyes had dark bags beneath them and his voice sounded dry. Suddenly, the line of code he was pointing at froze, no longer shifting through random characters. After a few seconds, it began cycling again. Did you see it stop? he asked. He hadn't looked at me since I came in. Yeah, I did, I answered. I took a step toward him calmly. What does that mean? I'll make a stop again, he said, his hand still raised. After a second, they halted. They're the same characters, each time it stops. I have them memorized now. How did you know it would stop? I asked. Is it on a timer or pattern or something? No, he replied quietly the corner of his mouth upturned. I made it stop. He looked away and towards me for the first time, and I could see that he hadn't been sleeping. When I compiled everything and ran it, all of this started. It looked random, and I thought it was for a while, but it isn't. It's actually very, very precise. I've never seen or heard of anything like this. I inched closer. What does it all mean? I asked. His eyes lit up in a way that belied the rest of his face. It's me. My confused look gave him a small laugh. Each line up there, he continued, corresponds to a part of me. He pointed back to the line of code. Watch again. He exhaled slowly drew a breath, and held it. As the airflow stopped, 
The code did as well. He put up a finger signaling to wait, then exhaled. As soon as he started breathing again, the code was rapidly shifting. That's... I looked around the room. No extra equipment, no sensors. The computer had power, mouse, keyboard, and video cable plugged into it. That was it. That's not possible. No, it's not. He sat down on the couch and gestured broadly around the room. And yet, here we are. I gingerly crossed the room and sat on the chair opposite him, unable to stop myself from glancing at the code scrawling indefinitely. They changed color, he said. When it first started, it was more chaotic. There were layers of lines. While trying to work it out, a few turned blue and disappeared. It wasn't until I noticed the breath synchronicity that I knew that something was going on. Once I made that connection, I found more. Somewhere, a single line, an action, like a movement or a word. Others lit up sequences of lines and required something more complicated. A phrase or dance-like motion. It was tricky figuring out the next step, but trial and error and brute force seem to be doing well so far. So you're linked to it? I asked. Sort of, he replied. What happens if... the computer turns off? What happens to me? Nothing. I've restarted it multiple times since the beginning, unplugged it even. Every time I turn it back on, it's the same display. I moved it out here to have more room to experiment and think. He scratched his head. Whatever this is, it's big. Maybe the biggest thing ever created or discovered. It knows everything about how I function, but I don't know the first thing about how it works. We sat in silence for a long time, transfixed. I tried wrapping my head around what was happening. It had to be some elaborate joke, but to what effect, I thought. He had never looked worse for wear in as long as I'd known him. The intense concentration and wonderment he exuded couldn't have been just for show. I broke the silence. You need to eat. He nodded softly in absent-minded agreement. And take a shower, because I could smell you when I walked in. I know, he said. Time has been getting away from me since all this. We stood up and he hesitated in front of the code for a moment before following me to the hallway. He asked me to preheat the oven while he went upstairs and showered. As I did, I heard the shower kick on and felt a small sense of relief. He didn't have much in the way of groceries or leftovers, so frozen pizza would have to do. I was taking drinks out of the fridge as the timer went off and Leonard walked into the kitchen, damp hair and clean clothes. He looked immediately better, although still tired. He took the pizza out and cut it, and we sat down at the bar to eat. The more he ate and drank, the more animated he became and soon was telling me about his theories. I was the only other person that knew what was going on, 
and he asked me to keep it secret until he knew exactly what it was. I agreed, on the grounds that he would take care of himself and not let it get as bad as it was before I came over. He happily accepted the terms, and ate most of the pizza by himself, in an almost ravenous fashion, before a thought occurred to him and he faced me. He swallowed the bite he had and said, I forgot to tell you in all the excitement. I found out about Wilson Crabtree and Christoph Lesher. Oh yeah? I responded. Who are they? They both lived in Maine in the late 70s. Wilson was born there and Christoph moved there from New York. They co-founded NEL in Wilson's garage when the video game boom happened. They wanted to work on defense contracts, private sector stuff, theoretical simulation programs, that sort of thing. They were using the NEL games for quick cash to try and secure project funding for proof-of-concept work. It didn't really work, since there was no real distribution model, so their games stayed regional. Also, they weren't good, so no one really wanted to play them. After a couple of years, they stopped making games and disappeared. Where did you find all this out? I asked. He leaned forward. Missing persons reports and obituaries. They're dead? Presumed dead. No bodies were found after they vanished. NEL was dissolved, and since they were an indie studio before the internet, no paper trails can be found. It was a cold case. Now guess the part I'm most interested in. I shrugged in submission. Who registered the address with NEL? And who replied to my email? A knot in my stomach formed. His sly grin made me feel worse. I don't like this, I told him. Everything about it is throwing red flags. You said they wanted to work on more serious projects. What if they did and now you're trying to dig into confidential information and someone knows? They could have planted a monitoring device on you somewhere, maybe injected you in your sleep or a capsule in your food, and they're showing you what they can do to make you back off. I really don't like this, man. I think you should stop and leave it alone. His face turned serious. I thought about that, but it wouldn't make sense for someone to be that powerful and not just send me a direct message or even take me out somehow. It has to be... something else. The style of the monitoring code and the style of the pieces I put together are too similar. Some I ripped directly from the cartridges themselves, bought them from different online collector stores, so I know they contain the original data before I got them. I could see where he was going. You think Wilson and Kristoff has something to do with this? I think they made what's running in the living room right now. I think they were working on a project and discovered a way to interface with technology that no one had before. He pushed the now empty plate away from him. And for some reason, they were dropping breadcrumbs in their side work. They've been waiting for someone to find out. You don't think they're dead, do you? I asked. No, well, at least not both of them. The email wasn't an automated reply. Someone is getting it and keeping the NEL namespace alive. I sent another email yesterday. 
That was pretty vague in case it was being watched or intercepted, but I think it dropped enough hints to make them aware that I had their code up and running. He rubbed his arm. You know what I'm starting to think this is? He asked. What? I think this is a test. A recruitment process. He stood and I followed, and we continued the conversation into the living room. He stopped in front of the screen and scoured each line. Doesn't look like that changed anything. I was worried that I would do something to set it back, but it's fine. We watched it for a few minutes before he turned back to me. Sorry, this isn't the most exciting way to host a guest. Not at all, I said. This is, without a doubt, the single most interesting visit I've had in my life. Whatever this is, if I didn't know any better, I'd say it was magic, he finished. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Easy, Arthur C. Clarke, I replied. That was a given, I admit, he said. He looked back at the screen. But I'm positive that this is the most applicable that quote has ever been. I still think there's something hooked up to you, I said. The simplest explanation is usually the right one. Following up Clark with Occam, huh? He looked back at me over his shoulder and sneered jokingly. You nerd. We turned our attention back to the television. A lull in conversation stretched until I noticed the sun had gone down. I glanced at the clock. Sorry to do this to you, but I have to get home, I said. He turned around quickly and blinked a few times. Wow, don't take this the wrong way, but I completely forgot you were here. Hey, thanks, man, I retorted. He laughed. To be fair, I offered. I also lost track of time. It just pulls you in. I totally get what you mean. He walked me to the door and we stepped outside. The sky was fully dark. We crossed the driveway and I opened the car door, sat in the driver's seat with one leg out on the ground and started the engine. I'm going back inside to see if I can make things happen, he said. I rolled the window down and swung my leg inside, shutting the door. He leaned over and put his hands on the roof. Please don't tell anyone. I need more time. And I promise I'll cut you in on the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Unless it's an actual pot of gold, I'll pass, I replied. Also, if someone tries to kill me now because I know too much, I'll never forgive you. He smiled and stepped back from the car. Talk to you tomorrow. I nodded. You better. I backed out onto the road and put it in drive. Leonard was already closing the front door behind him, the dim light from the living room the only indication of a presence in the house. That night I kept going over what I saw and what Leonard told me. This project was nothing like the others he worked on, and he knew it. He was also smart enough to know that it was all wrong and dangerous. How could he be so nonchalant about his vitals being monitored through unknown means by unknown assailants with unknown motives?
I made the decision to go over there the next day to talk him out of proceeding any further. He should be paranoid about the whole thing. As I climbed into bed, I had a thought echo. It's only paranoia when you're wrong. When you're right, it's caution. I was trying to remember where I heard that when I fell asleep. The next morning was quiet, and it took a moment after I woke to remember what happened the night before. I checked my phone to see if there was anything from Leonard. Nothing. I dropped it on the bed and rolled over. I hated confrontation and wasn't looking forward to his reaction when I would tell him point blank that he needed to stop. After breakfast and getting ready for the day, I turned on music for background noise while I caught up on some housework. Once the laundry was folded and the dishes were put away, it was one o'clock. I grabbed my phone and sent a text to Leonard, asking if I could swing by and talk for a minute. I ate lunch and still hadn't heard anything back. I had always been wary of arriving at someone's house uninvited, but figured that the current situation warranted a special case. I was putting my shoes on when my phone dinged. I had a new voicemail, but no missed call, which tended to happen where I lived due to bad signal. I called my voicemail and put it on speakerphone. You have one unheard message, a voice announced. First unheard message. Leonard's voice. I tried to replay it, but a voice announced, Empty mailbox. It hung up automatically. I tried calling Leonard, but it went straight to a busy signal. I left and drove as fast as I could to his house. I pounded on the door. The curtains were still drawn, and I couldn't see inside. I tried the back door, but got nothing. His car was still there, so it was unlikely he left. I went back around the front and called out for him, waiting for an answer before hitting the door again. A series of loud beeps sounded from inside. The smell of burning plastic stung my nostrils. I called emergency services, and dispatch said they would arrive in a few minutes. Distant sirens approached as I threw myself against the door, and soon a fire truck arrived. Two people hurried off the truck, one carrying an axe. They ordered me to stay back off the porch and verified the door was locked before banging on it and shouting, letting him know that they were going to enter. The one with the axe stood to the side of the door and swung the pick end between it and the frame with a solid crunch right above the knob. She wedged the head in and pried the door open, splinters scattering as it gave way beneath the leverage and flew inward. They entered quickly as a police car arrived, closely followed by an ambulance. I could see a small cloud of smoke coming from the living room and heard sprays from an extinguisher. As the spraying continued, 
Officers and paramedics waited outside. One of the firefighters went through the hallway and checked the rooms before moving upstairs. An all-clear came from the living room, and they met back up outside. Cleared upstairs, she said. There's a man in the second bedroom, unresponsive. At those words, the paramedics rushed in with their gear, officers close behind. I followed them before the remaining one stopped me. Please, no, I thought, as I bounded up the stairs. I reached the doorway to his office, and the scene inside froze me to the spot for a moment before the police forced me out. On the way to the door, I barely registered the smoldering pile of metal and plastic that used to be the computer. The sight has been etched into my memory in painstaking detail. One police officer just inside the door, the other halfway across the room the paramedics checking the vitals of the man lying on his side next to the wall, his eyes wide open in bewilderment. A network cable ran from the port on the wall to a coil on the floor, then into his open mouth, where it disappeared inside. During questioning, I told them everything that happened. After taking my statement, the investigator reviewed his notes. The computer was destroyed. No evidence was found of the code or program. His phone had been found and determined to have been sitting on the computer when it was burned. Furthermore, no trace of any other email accounts for him, except for his work email, which was being combed through for any useful evidence. Before I left, the investigator asked me again what time I received the voicemail. I reiterated that it was right before 2 o'clock. I wasn't able to check the message envelope because it was deleted as soon as I listened to it. Without that, I wasn't able to tell when it was actually sent. I asked him why, and he told me that the phone must have alerted me late. Based on the autopsy report, Leonard had died of an aneurysm around 11 p.m. the night before. There was no possible way he made any calls after that. Before I left, they gave me a card and told me they would be in touch if they needed anything else. I took it and stepped out into the cool air. As I crossed the parking lot, I took out my phone to see another voicemail alert with no missed call. Leonard's quote went through my mind. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. 